0: As Doug said, I'm Scott Pitta, uh, staff attorney with Veterans Legal Services. And I'm going to give a brief overview of military and veteran cultural competency. Some of the the differences between veteran culture and civilian culture that you might encounter or some information you might need to know uh, as you're speaking with your client to help you better understand your client. Uh, In addition to being a staff attorney at Veterans Legal Services, I am also a veteran myself. So just want to start off a sort of a one over the world view here, the different branches of the military serve of the military, you have uh, underneath the department of defense, the air force, the Navy, and the army, and the Marine Corps is a core of the Navy. What I want to highlight here is the coast guard is primarily falls. It falls underneath uh department of Homeland security. So if you're researching for your client and you're trying to find records, just I want you to understand that Army, Navy, Air Force, you're going to be looking for Department of Defense, Coast Guard, you're going to look for uh, Department of Homeland Security. Now, after the veteran leaves service, all of their records are supposed to be transferred to the Department of Veterans Affairs. And also their records go to the National Archives. Mm -hmm. So you may need to direct the client or your staff to make a request with the National Archives to get their records. Within the military, there are two big categories. You have your active duty component and you have your reserve component. Your active duty component is what you typically think of as the military. These are the folks that this is their full-time job. They're typically on some sort of service obligation, whether it's three years or eight years. Uh, depending on branch of service what their specialty is the training they've received Uh, and these folks they they often live on or near the installation and they're subject to mobilization or deployment pretty much any time on the other side of that coin you have your reserve component which includes your reserves and your national guard those are both reserve component these are your part-time military folks they have a civilian full-time job or they're in college, they're doing something else full-time and one week in a month, two weeks a year, they go and they complete their military service. Uh, the difference here is they're also subject to being called up for, net, for federal service, whether it's deployment overseas or deployment to DC, um, but they can also be called up for a stateside emergency by their governor. One issue you might run into with the guard and reserve component is they do have full-time employees within those units some of them are active duty some of them are not even though they're full-time employees and wear uniforms they are what's called a, a technician and they're often for the national guard they're state employees so that may make a difference as far as what benefits that they are authorized to collect so i'm not going to go into a tremendous amount of detail here as far as the major differences there, I just want you to know that there are differences within the, that reserve component, whether they're uh, those full-time people are active or if they're a technician. Within the rank structure of the military, you also have two big categories. You have your enlisted and you have your officers. Your enlisted is what you typically think of when somebody says, I'm joining the military. You know, the person right out of high school. They go, they meet with a recruiter and they sign some papers, raise their right hand. They get sworn in, off they go. They start off as a private and they work their way up through the ranks. Your officers are the folks that, uh, they're sort of your general management type folks within the military. Uh, They're your leadership ranks. The enlisted does have leadership ranks under the non-commissioned officers, sergeants and above but uh, your commissioned officers are, uh, they're created through some sort of officer producing school, whether it's a military service academy, West Point, Annapolis, Air Force Academy, ROTC, or an enlisted person can apply and go to an officer candidate school. And if they pass, then they get commissioned as an officer. Your enlisted personnel are typically addressed by their rank Private Smith, Sergeant Smith, your officers are addressed by their subordinates as sir or ma'am, uh, or as a generic by their rank, Captain Smith, Colonel Smith, so and, and so on. Um, so what you may see is with the veterans that come to see you or the service personnel that come to see you, uh, they're going to be very formal. They're going to call you sir, ma'am, uh, you know, and for them that is uh, that is a sign of high respect. So I, I just want to make sure that everybody's aware that it's you know that that is something that they're acknowledging uh, your education, your experience, your rank when they call you sir or ma'am. Uh, as you're going through the records, you may see something called grade, uh, pay grade, and it's very similar to rank in how it is laid out, but the grade is there to provide a, um, a uniform accounting purpose. So what you see across the different ranks of the different branches of the military is that there's a tremendous difference between terminology that's used. In the army, they use privates, sergeants, corporals. Um, in the Navy, there's um, you know petty officers, and so the ranks don't line up. So for accounting purposes and pay purposes, they created the pay grades. Enlisted are E1 through E9, E9 being the highest. Officers O1 through O10, uh, W1 to W5 for warrant officers, which I'll address here briefly. Uh, but that's really to make up for. The, uh, the potential to misunderstand what people are talking about. For example, in the army, a captain is an 03 for pay purposes. In the Navy, a captain is an 06, which is the equivalent of an army colonel. So there's a tremendous amount of difference there in not only what they get paid, but the um, the benefits and privileges that they're allowed to have, the housing they're allowed to have. So to streamline that, they have the, the grade structure. And you'll see that on some of the documents that the, uh, the service member will bring with them. Warrant officer is a completely separate structure of ranks. And they're very rare, extremely rare. They're called the unicorns of the military. Uh, and these are folks that perform highly specialized duties. Uh, these are your pilots in the army are the vast majority are warrant officers your criminal investigators, your detectives, uh, you know, and they're addressed as either chief warrant officer or Mr. or Ms. Uh, It may just be chief for short. Now, when you're speaking with your potential client, I just want to make sure everybody understands that you don't address everybody as soldier. Uh, You know, soldier is for folks that were in the army or, or are in the army. Uh, you can see here Air Force, Airmen, Coast Guard, Coast Guardsman, Marine Corps, Marine, Navy, Sailor. Uh, if you're not sure, just refer to them as the veteran or the service member. Uh, but don't write down the soldier. Now, what is a veteran? This slide is very wordy. Don't, don't bother reading it. I'm throwing the bottom half of this slide is purely just to demonstrate Uh, There's an inconsistent standard across various administrative agencies in the federal government, as far as what is a veteran and who qualifies for benefits. So if you ask your, your client, are you a veteran, depending on what they understand a veteran to be, they might say no, even though they qualify for veteran status under various government programs. So your best bet is to go and research the, the certain benefit that you're talking about or the statute that you're thinking of and see if this definition applies. These two here, the top one is just for the VA benefits. And you can see that's it's very short and almost every veteran, every service member falls into that definition. The second one is for unemployment benefits and whether or not an ex-service member meets the requirement for unemployment benefits. And there are a lot more hoops they have to jump through to qualify under that status. So just something to be aware of. Whatever the benefit is, go to the statute, see if they meet the the definition. Some of the different ways that the military personnel are are different from your typical civilian personnel are just Personality traits. We can typically pick each other out of a crowd just by the way we're standing, uh, words that we use. Uh, you know, th- these are things that, that will pop up and we can identify each other out there. But in the civilian world, you'll see you know, veterans typically are a lot more direct with their communication. In the workplace, conflicts are addressed. Uh, you're more likely to see a veteran go directly to their boss and say, you know did i screw this up are you angry with me yeah you know, it it's not that they are trying to cause a conflict it's they want to know you know did i do something wrong if so tell me you know um uh, the rules of conduct in the military are very explicit how you address you, your superiors how you you dress for a certain function you know everything is laid out there's a manual for everything where in the civilian workplace, it's not. It, uh, with Veterans Legal Services, Anna can tell you, you know, I was dressed a lot more formally for several of the uh, several of the meetings and, you know, it took a while watching Zoom to figure out, you know, what is the appropriate, um, you know, workplace dress code. Uh, so there, there are some very different, you know, differences within the, the military personnel versus uh, those who don't have a military background. So <clears throat> when we're talking about military pay and benefits, as we're going through um, and you're, you're dealing with your client, some of the things you're going to want to watch out for or just so that you understand the the military pay is based on their pay grade that we mentioned before and their total years of service. There's the opportunity to have other um, incentive pays like flight pay, combat pay. Um, And I'm not going to go into a tremendous amount of discussion on all the different types of pay that are available. Some of them are taxable, some of them are not. Some of the issues as far as bankruptcy may be concerned is that a service member gets additional pay for housing if they live off post. Uh, They get additional pay if they have a dependent. Uh, Dependent can be a spouse, a child, but the pay is either with dependent or without. So with dependent, they get more money. And with every paycheck, they get a leave and earning statement. This is their, um, you know, what we all get for our our paycheck, our pay stub. It breaks down all of the pay and all of the deductions and I could spend an hour just going over each and every box in the leave and earning statement, which is far more time than I have here. So I'll just direct everybody to dfas.mil and they have a website understanding the leave and earning statement Uh, that is the defense finance and accounting service. Now, when you're talking to a potential client about their retirement pay most military service members think of this as military retirement or a pension and it's earned after 20 years of military service if it's 20 years of reserve component service they don't start drawing that until they reach a certain age Uh, i believe now it's age 60. so if they get out at age 37 after 20 years of service they have to wait till they're 60. Va disability pay is another common pay you'll see after service. Uh, It is technically referred to as a VA disability pension, but a lot of service members don't think of it as a pension, they think of it as VA disability. So if you ask them if they're drawing a pension, they may say no, while they're actually drawing VA disability pay. So just something to watch out for in the terminology that you use. Now, within the military, uh, financial fitness is extremely important. It is a high priority for commanders at all levels. Uh, A lack of financial fitness can affect morale within a unit. It can affect the operational readiness rate of that unit. And that's important because the commander is evaluated based on their operational rate. Uh, It can affect operational security, a service member that has Issues with with debt or bankruptcy. This can affect their ability to get a security clearance. That's often a way that uh, some of our some of our country's enemies are able to get information from service members. Is they identify those that are struggling financially, and they use that as a way in. So, what seems like a minor infraction for a just a regular, serv- a regular civilian can be a big issue for a service member. The bounce check is the big example. Uh, that is typically a you know small issue for folks just walking around the street, but in the military, that gets a lot of attention and that'll get a service member called into their boss's office. Uh, they'll typically get a, some sort of written reprimand uh, and then, if it continues from there, it can cause major issues, uh, especially when it comes to the security clearance. If their job is dependent on that security clearance, they might not be able to re-enlist and continue their career. So, some of these issues, as they come to you, uh, they may seem to have a lot more stress than you would think, but uh, you know, it could be a career ender. Is is what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here. And lastly here, I want to point out some of the younger service members. The picture on the right is your stereotypical looking out the gate of a military base, Uh, a tremendous amount of businesses line up to, to make money. And you have an 18 to 21 year old who signs up for a three year, four year enlistment, they're living in the barracks, nearly all of their income is disposable and they don't make smart decisions. I didn't make smart decisions when I was 18 to 21 years old. Uh, The stereotypical scenario here, they go out, they buy an expensive car with a five or a six year loan. Well, they only have a three year enlistment. If they get out after three years, can they still afford the car and then make rent payments, things like that? Probably not. Um, And for the the younger enlisted who are living in the barracks, if they don't wanna live in the barracks anymore, Well, they have to get permission to move out. And in order to move out and draw a housing allowance, one of the the most common ways is they get married. So they get married before they probably should. Now they have a struggling marriage. They have a divorce. They have child support payments. And it just snowballs into this bigger problem. Now they're bouncing checks. They're getting called into their superior's office. And now they're coming to see you. So uh, I just wanted to give you sort of a a quick one over the world of life of a a young service member. And from there, I'll open it up. I guess we're doing questions at the end, I believe. So uh, I believe Anna is coming up next, Doug. That's correct. Yes. Thank you,
1: Scott.
2: Um, Hi everyone. Um, So my name is Anna Richardson. I'm the co-executive director and chief counsel at Veterans Legal Services Um, and we are a general practice at VLS so this is just some of the common civil legal issues that we end up dealing with with the veterans we work with Uh, and you can see consumer debt is a big one and that includes bankruptcy um, and other debt collection matters as well as you know credit reporting errors and things of that nature and um, Scott's given you an excellent foundation for how some of these issues occur and how um, the relationship that service members and veterans have with their money and their finances might be a bit different than what you're used to as a civilian. Um, Scott's already covered a bit about inquiring about military service, so I'm just going to skip through this slide. Um, But we do have certain specific protections for folks uh, serving in the military. And um, in particular, these protections can be really, really beneficial for the reserve component uh, service members that we talked about. So um, the Service Members Civil Relief Act has existed in in some form or another for quite some time, but it was updated when we saw really unprecedented use of our reserve components to uh, fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so... Um, what the SCRA does is provide certain protections in civil legal actions for service members who are called to active duty for 30 days or more. Um, and the SCRA is really like a foundational question like jurisdiction and, and it dictates, does the court have the ability to act in this case where um, a service member is a party? And some of the protections include uh, things like stays of civil proceedings while someone's deployed um, the ability to vacate a default judgment if it's entered against the, the service member while they're away, um, certain caps on interest rates for various debts and ability to terminate um, things like residential leases, uh, car leases and cell phone contracts. Um, and where this can really be helpful is, you know, when people are falling behind on their bills, um, they can do things that will, will help to protect themselves and their family. Uh, prevent evictions from happening while someone's deployed, postponing foreclosure, um, deferring certain tax payments and um, preventing repossession of property. So it's really a very helpful statute um, if you have someone who is serving on active duty or whose active duty service has uh, impacted their ability to participate in a legal matter. when you go to court to initiate a lawsuit as the plaintiff, you now must file a military affidavit that certifies the status of the defendant um, or it at very least says you can't determine if the person is serving in the military at that time. Um, the Defense Manpower Data Center does have a uh, portal you can use with someone's social security number to determine that if you do have that information. Um, and they can take requests by mail without the social security number if you're not sure. Um, So you know, there are ways to find out um, and and plaintiffs are always encouraged to do that and the court really should be requiring those forms although we've seen varying levels of compliance with that. Um, The requirements of the SCRA are that active duty for federal military service for at least 30 days, uh, that active duty materially affects the ability to participate and that there may be some type of meritorious defense that cannot be presented without the service member present. Um, And then there's a general good faith requirement. Um, And in these proceedings, an initial 90 day stay is required if it's requested by the service member, a judge can also order it on their own. um, And the request can really be made at any stage and through any communication with the court. Um, Separate from that, there is a uh, responsibility of the service member to show documentation from his or her chain of command that leave is not authorized to participate in the court action. Um, and from there, additional stays can be requ- requested by the service member. And in certain circumstances, the court may be required to appoint an attorney to represent the service member if they wish to go forward in their absence. Um, so let's say you have someone who a judgment's been entered against, um, you know, the, the plaintiff didn't know they were serving. So now um, they come home and they find out that there's this court judgment against them. Um, they have a right to go in and, and to vacate that judgment. So. Uh, if you're on the plaintiff side, this is a reason not to go forward if you know that someone's service is impacting their ability to participate. But on the defense side, if, if you do see, you know, in this case, let's say a debt collection is, uh, judgment's been entered against someone, they do have the ability to go in and vacate that as long as they do it within 90 days of their release from military service. Um, another law that is designed to protect active duty service members um, is the Military Lending Act. And you probably saw from Scott's photo that there were pawn shops and payday lenders and all sorts of other folks uh, sort of lined up right outside the base. So this was designed to ensure that um, interest rates are capped on most consumer credit products really to target payday lenders um, who were trying to exploit uh, service members in particular. Um, And it applies, the 36% cap applies to all of the um, kind of fees and charges associated with the credit product with a few limited exceptions. Um, It also prohibits mandatory waivers of certain consumer protection laws from being built into contracts for service members. Uh, It prohibits mandatory allotments. An allotment is basically agreeing to a, a direct payment from your paycheck to a particular vendor um, so let's say you took out a car loan, you might have, um, you know, Ford Motor Credit getting a payment directly from your check. Um, but this it used to be that uh, those creditors would require that, the Military Lending Act prohibits that from happening, um, as well as prohibiting prepayment penalties, so uh, paying off the debt early you can't be penalized. So just sort of thinking about a hypothetical veteran we thought would be a, a helpful exercise for us today. Um, So we have Victor Veteran, who's an example based on a real VLS client, Um, he's a 34-year-old combat veteran, he served in Iraq and Afghanistan, Um, he has some disabilities as a result of his military service, he's divorced, Um, for our purposes we added in that he lost his civilian job due to COVID today, Um, just to kind of give it some context of our current situation. While he has those disabilities, he's struggling to access certain benefits, he's being sued for unpaid credit card debt, he has an eviction matter and he's also dealing with that child support. So what we think about with that veteran before they get to court um, is a a series of several questions. Um, One of the first being, are these debts all valid? Um, You know, as Scott mentioned, service members can be targeted for lots of different, Nefarious practices. Uh, and unfortunately, because a certain amount of information about them is public, they can also um, get targeted with zombie kind of debt collections um, or, or debts that are just not theirs, but are someone with a similar name or things like that. And um, because of the serious consequences that can happen within the military, um, you know, often a, a call from a debt collector or something like that will get someone to pay those debts when they're not necessarily valid or enforceable. Um, so we always wanna be looking at, are the, are the debts valid or enforceable? Um, and are they even the veterans? Is there an issue with statute of limitations, things like that? Um, and then if, assuming it is a valid debt, is there a legal defense based on their military service or based on state or federal law? Um, so the SCRA may have entitled that person to an interest rate reduction, um, again, vacating a default judgment or uh, maybe they tried to break a contract and they weren't allowed to and that debt is now listed on their credit report and the, they're trying to collect the remainder of it. Um, so you always wanna look to those uh, particular legal defenses. And then finally, assuming it's a valid debt, um, you wanna look at how can this client better prioritize those obligations if, if they do have the ability to do that. Um, so in our example with Victor, you know, we know that He needs a roof over his head and he has a child support debt that is a non-dischargeable debt. So we'd be counseling him to look to those issues first before trying to deal with things like a credit card or or something of that nature. Um, When that veteran gets to court, um, you're gonna have an intersection of state law principles with this complicated system of federal laws and benefits. And those are gonna have impacts on your court action. Where we see this come up most commonly is around the type of income that the veteran might have Um, that includes you know the benefits they might be accessing are those benefits protected um, the type of housing they might be living in their family situation and you don't want to assume that um, the veteran's going to know about certain potential benefits and services uh, because they may be facing challenges to access those Um, And then finally, you want to be aware that obtaining evidence from certain government agencies can present some challenges because um, other than work that's directly related to certain um, agency responsibilities, you can't, um, for example, subpoena a staff member from the VA to come in and tell you you how much someone's receiving in benefits, for example. So now I just want to turn it to Roger briefly to talk a bit about debt collection here in Massachusetts in particular.
3: Thank you, Anna, uh, and welcome everyone. Um, As long as as well as being a lecturer at Harvard Law School, I'm also the director of our consumer protection clinic. And I do a lot of work with uh, people who are being sued on debts, uh, including a lot of veterans. Um, One of the things I want to talk about is just how widespread this problem is. Um, As as I indicated here, one in four Massachusetts residents has some kind of debt and debt collection. There are tens of thousands of debt collection cases filed in Massachusetts every year, most often by debt buyers, um, but often also by original creditors, credit card companies, Discover Bank, Citizens Bank, et cetera. And these cases are going to be filed in the uh, small claims court or the district court, or superior court in terms of the state courts. And these are often the things which will drive a veteran or a service member to your office. Uh, It's the debt collection, either the suit itself or the uh, constant calls. I've actually had so many people over the years when I asked them why they wanted to file bankruptcy, and I do a fair amount of bankruptcy work too, the largest answer I get uh, is that it's the constant phone calls. It's the constant attempts to collect. Um, But uh, an offshoot of that is obviously the actual court uh, when someone is brought to court. And uh, generally, uh, I'm gonna talk about district court actions because that's where you're gonna see most of these kinds of debts other than the the, uh, small claims court, which is a whole different universe. But uh, a lot of people we're finding more and more um, as we go along have defenses to these uh, lawsuits, these uh, debt collection actions, particularly those that are brought by debt buyers, which is an increasing part of this market. And what we're seeing is a lot of people who have actually paid these debts. So you're gonna wanna know what record your client has about payment. Uh, statute of limitations is another one. Massachusetts has a six-year statute of limitations on uh, credit card debt or, or basically any kind of debt because it's a basically basic breach of contract, but there may also be a shorter statute of limitations. Sometimes a credit card agreement, for example, will say that Delaware law applies and you might be able to use the three-year Delaware statute of limitations to defend your client in any kind of debt collection action or at least to advise them. We're seeing a lot more identity theft issues now because it is so easy basically to steal people's identity I should know, it happened to me about three months ago. Um, so I can tell you, it is no fun whatsoever. Uh, another thing that we uh, defend on these cases on a lot, particularly on debt buyer cases, and debt buyers are these out-of-state corporations that buy up defaulted debt by the tens of thousands for three to five cents on the dollar and then sue on the full amount of. What we see in a lot of those cases is that the debt buyer cannot prove they have standing. That simple concept we all thought about in law school, they can't prove they own the debt. Uh, and you can win cases. You can help your client by defeating these cases, by showing the court that, in fact, this debt buyer does not have standing to bring this case. You also can bring counterclaims under the FDCPA. And Massachusetts has a really good state version, unlike a lot of states uh, under uh, 940 CMR, which also applies to original creditors, but unlike the FDCPA. So this is a very good uh, counterclaim. These may be potentially good counterclaims based on what collection activities have uh, unfairly been used against your client, and also our, our old favorite, uh, old favorite chapter ninety three a, any unfair or deceptive action in collecting a debt, uh, as in uh, misstating the amount of debt, or you're violating, that uh, dec- uh, something that would violate the FDCPA also would violate ninety three a, which would entitle an attorney to attorney's fees and your client to multiple damages. But um, one of the things you. To win these cases, or not even so much to win these cases, but to make sure that your client doesn't have to pay is to show that your client is collection-proof. We often used to call this judgment-proof, but we all know that no one is actually judgment-proof. A judgment can be taken against anyone. But uh, people who are collection-proof are people who have no non-exempt assets. Uh, So a creditor can sue somebody, get a judgment, but that person cannot be coerced to pay that judgment. A lot of people still will want to pay judgments because a lot of people feel it's important to be able to do that, but they cannot be forced into doing that. Uh, The the attorney general's office had a recent lawsuit against one of the big debt collection law firms, um, and the sole basis of that lawsuit was that they were forcing, the collection firm was trying to force people to pay uh, debts with their uh, exempt assets, and uh, that case was settled in a very uh, positive way for the attorney general's office. What are those exempt assets uh, that you need to examine for your client or talk to them about? Um, We have Massachusetts has personal property exemptions, uh, which... uh, would prevent a creditor from taking certain property in uh, to support a judgment or in bankruptcy as I'm sure that uh, Don and Jessica will talk about. Uh, it, it's the old classic, uh, it includes the old classic about your horse and your cow and your sheep and your bales of hay and all that, but it's been updated. Um, uh, you can have $7,500 worth of equity in a car, for example, and that can go up to $15,000 if uh, somebody um, is disabled or elderly. Uh, $2,500 in the bank uh, can be exempted. $2,500 for rent can be exempted. $15,000 for furniture. Um, most clients that I see um, do not have any assets on, uh, that would be exposed to their creditors uh, under this uh, scenario under 235, Section 34. There's also a wildcard provision in there, much like on the federal side, which adds another $6,000 where mostly clients are gonna be contacting a lawyer in terms of lawsuits and collections is gonna be under wage garnishments. Massachusetts has a better wage garnishment protection system for debtors than the Fed that we do under the feds. Um, The uh, right now with the the minimum wage in Massachusetts being uh, raised to $13.50 as of a month ago, the first $675 a week of a person's income is protected from garnishment and garnishment is the most commonly used method to try to collect on debts in Massachusetts, garnishments, and then sometimes to attach bank accounts, but I'd say garnishments are probably 80 or 90 percent of collection actions. So it's important to know the protections that a debtor would have, and I'm I'm sort of stepping outside the veterans component, but uh, the first $675 per week are protected, and essentially after that, it's 85 cents of every dollar are going to be protected. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't vary, uh, unlike what Scott was saying, it doesn't vary based on Uh, how many people in your household, it's based just on the debtor's income. So you can have a household of 12 people and the exemption for uh, wages is gonna be the same. Also for those uh, clients who come to see you who have a homestead, uh, Massachusetts has a very generous uh, protection of homesteads, uh, as generous almost as anywhere in the country. If a homestead exemption or a homestead homestead notice has been filed, you can can protect up to $500,000 of equity in a property. And if, uh, if uh, two people own and are over age 62, I believe it goes up to a million dollars can be protected. So that's a very good amount of protection for an individual. Also, you need to think about uh, the source of income. Uh, we've talked about garnishment. Uh, Social security and SNAP and workers, workers' comp and veterans' pensions, et cetera, cannot be garnished at all, except under very limited circumstances for child support or for federal debts, for example. So um, those are things you really wanna be uh, clued in on is what is your client's source of income? Because it, it could very well be that your client will in fact not be subject to any kind of garnishment or any kind of collection action. And once you've come to that conclusion, you're um, looking at these exemptions, both under the garnishment and on uh, the property, you uh, should feel free to contact the attorneys on the other side of the case and explain to them. Many of them will in fact dismiss cases if you can prove that your client's sole source of income is social security or that all of their assets are exempt because it's not worth their time and effort and they don't wanna be the next one uh, with the bullseye on them from the attorney general's office. So it's a a very valuable use of your time. If you have someone who's coming to you for one or two debts to really dig in to see whether uh, perhaps uh, that person would not need a bankruptcy, but would be able to defend these lawsuits uh, and to make them go away. And also, um, even if you can't make them go away, you may be able to settle them for very little money depending on the strength of your claims and depending on uh, really what documents the other side has and how hungry they are to try to get the money. And in this time of COVID, things are changing. So we don't know exactly how this is going to be as we go forward. But um, And we already talked about prioritizing debts. Uh, Anna has covered that. So there's nothing else I want to cover in terms of this, um, other than I'm going to want to turn it over to Don and Jessica to talk about uh, bankruptcy, which is why we're all here today.
2: All right, so I'm gonna stop sharing here. Um, Just to draw folks' attention, we did provide a a PDF document in your packet of materials that you should be getting after the program that lists a chart of all the different types of common pay and benefits that you might encounter and which ones are um, subject to garnishment and which ones aren't, as well as authorities for all of that.
1: Thank you, Anna. <laughs> um, can everyone see the screen? Okay. So, As Doug mentioned, I'm Jessica Yumberg. I'm from the bankruptcy court, but I just want to give a quick disclaimer that um, any opinions are my own and are not those of the court. Have Don here with me. Anything you want to say introduction-wise, Don?
4: Uh, you can pin me. Anything I say, you can use against me, I guess. That's about it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think want to provide a quick bankruptcy overview for people who may not be familiar with uh, bankruptcy at all um, or, very, or have very little familiarity with it. Um, so first, what can bankruptcy accomplish? We've put a link to a website here <laughs> that briefly describes the the bankruptcy basics. Um, The bankruptcy code is uh, federal law. It's under Title 11 and it's been enacted by Congress pursuant to its authority to enact uniform bankruptcy laws. Um, And so for our purposes here, the general idea is to eliminate personal liability for specific debts. Uh, This goal is often described or quoted as to give an honest but unfortunate debtor a financial fresh start. Um, so, you know, for example, when a case is filed, um, there's often an automatic stay that generally goes into effect and, and that restricts creditor activity while the case is pending to, to really give the debtor some breathing room. Um.
4: So um, a couple of things. Um, I, I really like what Roger had to say about the um, Uh, debt collection opportunities to blunt that Um, bankruptcy is really the last option never the first Um, I have had clients actually that have been put in jail uh, because they would not pay a debt so there are some places in the commonwealth stay away from the cape um, where you can find yourself in jail overnight Um, I never knew there was such a thing but it does happen Uh, and uh, so I think um, what I find is when clients just become so Um, upset or uh, phone calls become too much, that does lead to bankruptcy. And sometimes you just can't work things out, right? Some clients have too many creditors um, or the few creditors they have are just so obstreperous or so difficult to deal with that a bankruptcy becomes a a good option, but always last, not first. Uh, Who's typically involved in your bankruptcy case? Uh, In addition to the debtor, the person you're representing who owes the money Um, You have the people that are owed money, the creditors. Um, In every bankruptcy case, uh, particularly in these consumer cases we're talking about now, you have a Chapter 7 trustee. I am a Chapter 7 trustee. And the Chapter 7 trustee's job is to basically screen the case, vet the case, interview the um, debtor um, at a meeting of creditors, make sure that the debtor is telling the truth, uh, and also provide a forum for creditors to ask questions uh, of the the debtor. So the trustee is, is overseeing the case, Um, making sure the case proceeds smoothly, making sure everything is done properly, uh, papers are filed appropriately, uh, and uh, the debtor is being accurate. Um, There's also a a bankruptcy judge assigned to every case. Uh, I'd say in 99% of consumer bankruptcy cases in Chapter 7, um, you'll you'll never see a bankruptcy judge. Um, uh, And um, uh, that's really, really a case in almost all Chapter 7s. Um, The judge may appear uh, more frequently in other types of uh, bankruptcy proceedings, um, different options in addition to Chapter 7, uh, Chapter 7 being generally referred to as a liquidation case. Uh, There's no repayment plan. Uh, In most consumer Chapter 7s, the uh, debtors retain all their assets uh, and, as Jessica said, obtain a discharge of their obligations and a fresh start. So they keep what they had when they went into bankruptcy, they shed their debt. Uh, Their balance sheet is greatly improved and they can move on from there. Uh, Some debtors have an opportunity or ability to repay, which they may select for a variety of reasons. And there are reorganization provisions, chapters 11 and chapter 13, the most commonly used by individuals chapter 13, uh, where you can repay some or all uh, of your obligations over a set period of time. Uh, Some debtors do have an ability to repay uh, they can't necessarily pay all their debt as quickly as their creditors would like uh, and or in full, but they can pay something over time. Chapter 13 might provide them with a, a good option. In addition, some debtors may have an asset that they might otherwise lose in a bankruptcy case, uh, or they want to cure a, a rearage on their house or on a car. Chapter 13 is a really great tool to accomplish that. So these are the different, I guess, reorganization provisions. 11 and 13. I would also mention uh, that um, chapter 11 uh, has a provision for small businesses and and can also apply to individuals uh, with certain amounts of debt. Uh, And it was um, uh, really a streamlined opportunity to reorganize very quickly and less expensively than chapter 11 business reorganization. So something just to keep in mind Um, A new new provision was just enacted in February of 2020, uh, Small Business Reorganization Act. Uh, Jessica, go ahead.
1: So if you're wondering who can practice in bankruptcy court, it's uh, attorneys who are already members of the bar of the District of Massachusetts. And if you're not um, already in that situation, then there are provisions under the local rules um, for other attorneys to practice temporarily as well. Um, generally though, if you're if you're new to bankruptcy, it's it's recommended that you work with an experienced bankruptcy attorney or an organization that could provide some guidance as needed. Just to talk about some pre-bankruptcy considerations, um, and and Roger and Anna have already kind of highlighted this. Um, is bankruptcy truly necessary? Um, also, how likely is bankruptcy to help? Can it do more harm than good? Can the client afford the filing fee? And can the client afford counsel?
4: So um, one of the things that um, has been uh, discussed was, is bankruptcy truly necessary? And I, I do I want to emphasize that um, you don't jump to that. I, I, I meet with many clients that do not end up filing bankruptcy for one reason or another. Either there's a workout opportunity, uh, there's a ability to establish um, that there are, is nothing to be gained by continuing um, uh, the, the, the practice of the collection. So I think that um, uh, it's very important to think carefully about options to it, in particular, because bankruptcy discharge is a limited thing. So you can't go bankrupt every year. Uh, m- maybe that would be good. Maybe that would be bad. I don't know. It depends on what side of the you know, uh, uh, I guess, what side of the equation you're on. But you can only get a discharge once every eight years under Chapter Seven. So you want to see what condition your client is in and is now the time that they want to use that opportunity or might it be better to preserve for later on?
1: Exactly. And so we just have some examples here um, and and Roger already covered this a bit, the collection proof debtor, the person who has um, protected income and exempt assets, um, bankruptcy might not be a good option for that person. It It won't add anything. Um, As far as student loans go, uh, as as people are generally familiar, it's very difficult to get rid of those in bankruptcy, and so there are other options, um, especially for people with disabilities, student loan forgiveness might be be an option, and there are income-based repayment plans that might be a better option. Um, If your client has been overpaid a benefit, such as from the VA or Social Security, there may be other ways to deal with that. Um, such as disputing the overpayment, um, requesting a waiver, or trying to do a payment plan that's more affordable. Um, and then if taxes, federal taxes are an issue, and it would be a hardship for your client to pay those, then it might be possible to get the IRS to put the client into a currently not collectible status, so that when they're in a better situation, they might be able to pay the debt later. So moving on to how likely is bankruptcy to help? Um, so a discharge um, in bankruptcy is not automatically guaranteed, and it may not substantially resolve your client's financial issues. Um, it can be unavailable for or denied as to specific as to a specific debt, or maybe denied generally. So the, there are a few things to consider here: the type of debt and whether the client has regular income can affect whether bankruptcy will help. Um, as Anna mentioned, domestic support obligations can be a big, um, a big debt for the clients that she sees, um, that's child support, alimony. Um, these are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Uh, so if your client doesn't have regular income to try to do a payment plan while remaining current, then it then bankruptcy is is not going to help with that kind of debt. Um, some other examples there are secured debt. Um, the, the lien is going to remain after the bankruptcy even if the the debt is eliminated so unless um, your client is able to address that through some kind of repayment plan address like a pre-petition rearage, um, then then it's just not it's not really going to be to an advantage um, moving on to something military specific an, unarmed, an unearned bonus or similar benefit received as a member of the uniformed services is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. An example of this might be where someone has, well, it's not dischargeable within a certain amount of time. So you'd want to look to that, those provisions there to, to see if that applies to your client. But an example of it would be um, maybe somebody received an enlistment or reenlistment bonus and then for whatever reason didn't complete the service obligation associated with that and now owes a debt to the U.S. government.
4: There's some uh, a few additional things I want to talk about. I always say, as a bankruptcy lawyer, you want to make things better, not worse. Uh, your lawyer, uh, your client, probably is in a pretty bad place when they come and see you, uh, so you want to improve their position, um, not put them in a little um, in I guess a little more prickly position. So uh, things that are good to think about before deciding uh, or, or when evaluating whether bankruptcy help uh, will help or not is um, the circumstances. Uh, uh, under which the obligations were incurred. Um, In most consumer cases, when you're dealing with credit cards, um, I find that most clients, there's no bad acts. They had a credit card, they used it, they were able to pay for a period of time, and now they're not for circumstances well beyond their control. Uh, But that's not always the case. Uh, And so I think it's good to um, understand, um, have a discussion, a careful discussion um, with the debtor about the debt um, how it was incurred, what their payment history was, um, so that you can get a sense of whether a, there may have been fraud or bad conduct on the part of the debtor in connection with obtaining the credit card or representations that may have been made to uh, individuals that they borrowed money from that um, might be problematic in a bankruptcy case later on. Uh, it'll give you a better sense of what you're getting into in terms of the amount of work that you may have to conduct and also whether bankruptcy will actually help Um, bankruptcy uh, is not uh, helpful if the case is filed and then the creditors uh, are um, attacking the debtor's discharge. So you've incurred the time and expense of preparing a case, but the discharge is impaired due to the actions of the debtor in connection with the debt before the bankruptcy case was filed. Also in bankruptcy, you're signing uh, documents under penalties and pains of perjury. Uh, There's a creditors meeting where you give testimony under pains and penalties of perjury. So you have to make sure your client can tell the truth uh, and that the truth will not be problematic for them. So uh, you, you wanna be, be sure that they'll be comfortable with that, uh, that the story they tell um, is not only accurate, but not problematic. Uh, they also have to be able to give complete disclosure. Uh, there are bankruptcy documents that are filed in every bankruptcy case that require pretty extensive financial disclosure and a failure to be able to explain why you don't have sufficient assets to pay your claims uh, and what your financial condition has been over the past at least two years and can be longer uh, can be a basis for denying you bankruptcy relief. So you wanna make sure your case is well set up uh, so that your client is not uncomfortable with the process of disclosure. Next slide. Uh, on the more harm than good. So um, when's it, when an individual files bankruptcy, um, a, as I mentioned before, a bankruptcy trustee is appointed and they'll look at the financial condition and transactions that the debtor is engaged in. So you have to think about how the bankruptcy might affect third parties, not necessarily your client. So you will be evaluating impact on people that are not your client. Uh, So if there are co-obligors or guarantors of obligations that your client may be seeking to discharge, might that then put those third parties in a a spot of bother? And it's good to have those discussions before the bankruptcy is filed so that the client can think about that and potentially talk to these people um, about this um, and see if there may be um, another way to resolve things. I have had cases where third parties will then step up and provide some financial backing to settle as opposed to having a bankruptcy filed um, and potentially exposing uh, their credit uh, because they then become the target for payment. And they were not before the bankruptcy, but because the individual has now filed bankruptcy, the co-signer or guarantor is exposed to, to the liability. Uh, in addition, uh, certain types of transactions can be unwound uh, so, um, uh, a typical scenario uh, individual files bankruptcy, had borrowed money from a family member uh, months or uh, months before the bankruptcy case, paid the family member back. Um, those types of transactions are subject to review by the bankruptcy trustee and may be clawed back. So, it can be a, an embarrassing situation for a, um, uh, uh, an individual in bankruptcy when his family member is contacted by a bankruptcy trustee probably having told no one about the fact that they're filing bankruptcy. And then a bankruptcy trustee is calling family members saying uh, this this large payment you received from this individual before the bankruptcy case that has to be sent back. So I think those kinds of things have to be reviewed so that you don't put the client in in a difficult situation. In many cases, these situations can be worked out as long as they're identified. So I think your job is to identify the spot Uh, and then see if it's problematic. If it is, see if there's a way to get around it. There's many things in bankruptcy that um, revolve around time. So you might find a specific transaction and say you're gonna delay things to to get past that that applicable period of time. Uh, In addition, bankruptcy exemptions uh, protect property from creditor claims. And so you wanna have carefully reviewed everything that your client owns uh, and see if it fits into an appropriate exemption category if property is going to be exposed to creditor claims in bankruptcy, you want to be able to review that with your client before the bankruptcy case is filed.
1: So as you might expect, bankruptcy negatively impacts creditworthiness, and that can in turn impact uh, future, current and future employment as well as the ability to obtain loans. As Scott mentioned earlier, security clearance is a big deal with um, people who are serving in the military. Um, the reason is that security clearance provides access to classified information, and so there are many factors considered before somebody gets that access, including financial factors. And there's and the reason that it's considered is that there's a risk that someone um, may uh, may be overextended financially, and then may be subject to. Uh, influenced by being paid money um, in exchange for classified information and be more, maybe more um, susceptible to that. Um, So so the the federal regulations take this into account as one of the factors in security clearance and and it can be mitigated to the extent that debt is a problem. Um, And so if the behavior wasn't recent, if it was an isolated incident, if the Conditions were largely beyond the person's control. Um, if the person has resolved the issue or is making good faith effort to resolve the issue, including possibly through bankruptcy, um, they may be able to retain or obtain their security clearance. Um, they may wish to uh, consult with the Legal Affairs Office on this matter before filing for bankruptcy. Um, another thing to consider is the VA home loan guarantee. This is a tremendous benefit that goes to certain active and former service members, um, depending on length of service and some other factors, it's reusable. And what it is, is the VA guarantees a home loan up to a certain amount. And so this eliminates the need for mortgage insurance premiums to be paid. Um, And usually there's no down payment required. This is again, tremendous benefit. Um, But because of the underwriting criteria, bankruptcy, uh, a bankruptcy can lead to a waiting period before the VA would guarantee a home loan. And so the waiting period could be at least two years after a bankruptcy, depending on the type of bankruptcy filed and some other factors, uh, including the reasons for the bankruptcy. Um, with the chapter 13 reorganization and repayment plan type of bankruptcy leading to likely leading to less of a repayment, I'm sorry, leading less <laughs> likely leading to less of a waiting period um, if payments have been made uh, under the bankruptcy repayment plan. Uh, So can the client afford the filing fee? In bankruptcy, uh, filing fees vary depending on the type of bankruptcy that's being filed. Uh, A few examples here. Chapter 7 is $338. Uh, Chapter 13 is $313. Chapter 11 is $1,738.
4: Yeah, a few things on the filing fees um, that um, I think many practitioners may gloss over, and that is that um, um, the filing fees in a uh, bankruptcy case can be waived. Uh, you have to apply for the waiver. Um, It's based on um, uh, two things. Uh, One, um, uh, the uh, uh, certain poverty guidelines apply. Uh, So if the um, debtor's income is less than 150% of poverty guidelines, um, and you must be able to prove that you can't pay in installments, Um, lawyers' fees can be paid. So a lawyer can be paid in a bankruptcy case and still seek a fee waiver. Um, unusual, um, but um, the, it, it, that is the case in a bankruptcy case. So keep in mind, um, filing fee waivers are available uh, for clients that are unable to, um, uh, uh, unable to, to pay. Um, uh, the other alternative is uh, payment uh, of the filing fee um, over a period of time, typically 120 days. Uh, Can can the client afford uh, the, uh, oh, you want to slide to the next slide? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yep, go back one. My my mistake. I had two screens up and I wasn't sure which screen I was on. And so I got wholly confused there. Uh, So can the client afford counsel? Um, uh, I I think um, most um, uh, fees in bankruptcy cases, in Chapter 7 consumer cases, flat fee, Um, most many chapter 13s are as well, but not all are. Uh, You can, uh, there are hourly rates. Um, I find depending on complexity, that that's what will happen. So if a case is less complicated, typically done on a flat fee, almost like a commodity now, bankruptcy cases, um, uh, more more complicated cases, more involved, more likely on an hourly fee. Uh, And um, you also have to think about how you're gonna get paid. So um, it's not likely that you will be paid on a credit card, at least your client's credit card, because they're gonna be filing bankruptcy, probably not a great idea, uh, but third parties can pay you if the debtor is unable to do it. And in a chapter 13, your fees can be paid through the plan. So if the debtor hasn't, doesn't have the money upfront, uh, you can be paid through the plan. And in chapter seven, ordinarily paid in full prior to the time the bankruptcy case is filed, because if you're not paid before your debt whatever amount you have is discharged by the chapter seven filing. So in the chapter seven case, you wanna be paid in full before chapter 13, you might be paid uh, through your uh, chapter 13 uh, plan.
1: It's of course also an option to offer or find a referral to a free or reduced fee service. So, just on our last slide here, some examples of military service related bankruptcy provisions and protections. Um, these are just examples, there may be others. This is just to kind of flag a few ideas for you. Um, there are, so the most, <laughs> in August 2019, there was an amendment to the definition of current monthly income under the bankruptcy code. And um, there are other whole presentations on that. Um, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than you might expect but generally um, the amendment excluded certain military service-related death and disability benefits from the definition of current monthly income. And this matters for a couple of reasons. There's a a means test in bankruptcy. and It's roughly intended to prevent people who have higher incomes from being able to just wipe out debt without making partial or full payments on those through payment plans. Um, And then for people who are um, able to do payment plans, uh, their disposable income is going to be a factor in that, and the disposable income would be derived from the current monthly income. Um, there are also some means test uh, exemptions. The means test that I just mentioned. <laughs> there are some means test exemptions um, specific to military service. Um, if a disabled veteran um, had indebtedness that was occurred, that occurred primarily during a period um when he or she was serving on active duty or performing a homeland defense activity they may be exempted from the means test and there's also a much more complicated exemption for those who have recently served in the reserves or the national Guard. So something to just keep an eye on um, and then um, before bankruptcy is filed there's generally a credit counseling requirement and then before it discharges entered in the case. There's generally a personal financial management course that must be completed. There are some limited exemptions for that um, for people who are unable to complete the requirements due to incapacity, disability, or active military duty in a military combat zone. So if that's the situation for your client, you might be able to get um, a waiver for those requirements.
4: I would just add, if you're seeking a waiver of that credit counseling requirement, you have to. You do, it's done by motion? Uh, and uh, you have to provide evidence of the um, waiver you're seeking. So it it is a bit of extra work, um, and be aware of that. It's not simply ticking a box. Um, You have to ask the court for permission, and you have to provide documentary evidence of the basis for which you're seeking the waiver. Last item, um, there is an exemption for um, veterans' benefits in the bankruptcy code. So if your client is receiving veterans' benefits, um, you should – within the definition of the exemption, um, then there's no concern that, oh, what is gonna happen to those that future stream of benefits? Am I gonna have to turn that over to the bankruptcy trustee to pay my debts? The answer is no, they should be exempt under federal law. There are also generous exemptions under state law. So your client should not have to worry that that stream of income that they've enjoyed, um, that they're entitled to, they're gonna lose. And that's all I have on that.
2: So I know we're about five minutes after four, which was our end time. Um, so one other thing I wanted to flag for folks is Massachusetts did recently update the rules of civil procedure um, with regard to certain debt collections. So under rule 8.1, there are now certain special filing requirements um, for consumer debt collection actions that the creditor has to certify certain specific things um, such as, you know, providing documentation of the debt and that it's not past the statute of limitations and things like that. So, um, those are new-ish, um, I believe they came out just kind of pre-COVID, um, and you do want to look at those if you're dealing with, a, a action in the district court or something like that. Um, I'll just, Ask if anybody else has any final thoughts before we wrap up. Um, I don't see any questions in the Q&A, but Doug, please speak up if I'm missing something.
1: Uh, You're correct, Donna. There are no questions in the Q&A.
2: All right. Well, it sounds like uh, everybody's all set. So I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up and thank you to everyone for coming today.